The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for joining in. I have a great guest today. Uh, I am. We're going to be talking with Karen Flynn, who is the CEO of the Bay Area Discovery Museum. I had a wonderful opportunity to hear Karen speak when I was uh, at a conference with my uh, colleagues at the museum group this uh, winter, and she was truly inspirational. And I'll say that just uh, over the last uh, five minutes, as Karen and I have been sort of getting ready for the show, we had such an interesting conversation, and I am even more uh, energized. Uh, So Karen has had a fabulously interesting uh, career, and we are uh, so thrilled and and proud to have her now among us in the museum community. So with that, Karen, I'm going to welcome you to the show and ask you to please share your career path with us in your own words. Well, Carol, thank you for the very nice introduction, and I only hope that I live up to that. Um, So I do come to the museum world from a very circuitous path. I started off actually doing work in emerging markets, living in Poland, focused on economic development at the grassroots level. And I guess maybe it was at that point I was thinking on this last night that there was probably some part of me that really felt inspired by having a career or a job where I could make a real impact and see a difference in my work. Having said that, after I left Poland, I did go to business school and earned an MBA from London Business School and went to go work for Goldman Sachs, which may be at the opposite end of doing grassroots development work and was a private banker there for a number of years. And I think that I learned some really great lessons, though, at Goldman. I had wanted a place that had a very structured, process-driven approach where I could learn what I think was some of the best professional skills. And it also taught me a great lesson about the importance of people and the importance of culture and being able to achieve your goals and aspirations. I did leave Goldman after when I started to have some children. The confluence of my husband is also a banker, and having two bankers in the family didn't necessarily provide the same or 
the right personal balance that we had envisioned for raising a family. And when I left, it provided me an opportunity to get very involved with various nonprofits. And so I joined the boards of a couple of nonprofits, which is, in fact, how I came to the Barry Discovery Museum. I was a trustee there for five years. And right before I became the interim CEO, I was the incoming chair of the board. Our executive director left. The board asked if I would step in on an interim basis for three, four hours a day, three, four days a week, and that was maybe the first week, and after that, it was really a full-time job, but one that I found myself absolutely thrilled to do. I remember sitting in our conference room on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock thinking, wow, how lucky am I that this is what I get to do with my time, and as a trustee, I had always felt that the museum, while an incredibly special place and great in and of its own right then, that it had the potential to be more. And suddenly, as interim CEO, I recognized that I had the opportunity to figure out and create a vision of what that might look like. I did a quick and dirty strategic plan with the help of another board member at the time. And as part of that plan, and we did it in three months, start to finish, the board adopted not only the plan, but appointed me the full-time CEO for two years. And that I've been there now almost five years, so things seem to be going okay. We've recently completed a second strategic plan outlining a very bold vision for the next three to five years, and we're busy getting ready to execute against that or currently executing against that. Wow, that's fabulous. Uh, you know, I, I always find it interesting, and you've, you've alluded to this, but uh, in looking at your resume, you were involved in a number of very, uh, uh, very important boards uh, that were making uh, significant impacts in the community. What, you know, I, I'm just interested in your thought process of, of the many, many things that you could have devoted your time and talents to. What really stood out uh, about the Bay Area Children's Museum? Um, a couple of things. One, I mean, as a trustee or as CEO now? Well, well, first, first as a trustee. I mean, I, I always, I always find that interesting. We don't talk a lot about it really on the show about what goes through the minds of uh, mm-hmm. people who are essentially the ultimate volunteers. Mm-hmm. So, one, I found, I do believe that great cities, if you're trying to create a robust cultural and uh, leisure time life for your, the people who live in the city, you need to have world-class institutions and facilities that, this, that the community has invested in. And I really feel that about the Bay Area Discovery Museum. I also, for those of you who don't know, we're located on seven and a half acres in a national park at the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge. So we have a very unique site that when people come with their children, it's one of the few places where they feel completely safe. Their children can take risks, run around <clears throat> in, you know, out in nature if they so choose, since a large part of our site is outside. And I felt that that was very unique and something to be nurtured and taken care of in a very um, special way. I was also looking for an opportunity to interact with and spend time with smart, driven people. And our board has been historically and continues to be exactly that. Unlike a lot of 
boards, particularly children's museums boards, our entire board has always been people with young children who have come to the museum board by using the museum. So they're all roughly 35 to 45, and they're in the peak of their careers, and it just creates a very interesting dynamic. And I also, I wanted to give back to and do something for the community. I felt that I was fortunate to be able to have some help that allowed me to, while not work in a traditional sense, be very engaged and very active through the board, and that was very fulfilling. That's, uh, those are all very, very good uh, and uh, things for us, us to remember when we think about museums, uh, making sure that they are part of, of that fabric. And I, I agree with you completely that one of the, the sad parts I know here in uh, the Washington, D.C. area as well, is that there just aren't those safe nature places as much as we hope that they would be. And I, I agree with you. That's a great thing to, uh, to nurture. Uh, so then you made the transition from board chair to CEO, as you said, first as sort of as a, as an interim, you know, just a helper outer and, uh, then, then, uh, taking it on full time. What do you think are the biggest mind shifts from being, uh, the, being on the board to being the, uh, you know, head of staff? I think the biggest is recognizing that you are responsible for holding the vision and guiding the vision and bringing all of the disparate parts together to unify around that vision and that to be successful, ultimately, you have to do that. And that initially can seem quite overwhelming. It's not just the tactical pieces of running the museum and, you know, are we open today or what type of programming are we doing it's really making sure there is deep alignment among all your core constituencies. And that's very different than being a board member where you might be, I was always very involved in the development committee, so I was focused on one relatively narrow aspect, but suddenly you're holding all the different pieces. So I think that's the biggest difference. That's, in, that's very interesting. Well, why don't you uh, help us understand, uh, as I said, I, I've had the privilege of, uh, of hearing you speak and visiting the, uh, the Bay Area Children's Museum, but for the benefit of all of our listeners, could you just give you know, sort of uh, size, scope, size of staff, operating budget, just so that we can get a sense of the scale of the organization? Sure. So we sit on seven and a half acres in the GGNRA, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and we're housed in a historic army building site. So it really adds to our character and who we are. We have about 300,000 people visit every year, roughly 12,000 school visits. Our budget is seven and a half million this year, and I expect it will be at eight, which will have doubled in the last four and a half years. We have about 80 full-time staff on any given day, and in the summer we go up to around 100, 110 with our summer programs. And I'm trying to think what else might be interesting. We also, you know, we kind of think about our work in really four main buckets. There's our community outreach and partnerships, our preschool, the actual on-site museum experience, and then our programs for schools and teachers. 
Thank you. That that uh, that helps. And wow, to have doubled the budget in such a short period of time, uh, I would suspect that uh, a significant amount of that success was your ability to create a uh, a visioning uh, plan in a short period of time, but also one that clearly brought everyone along. Uh, you know, I think we've all heard stories and or been involved in visioning programs that take years. Uh, and by that point, you know, all of the external factors have changed. Uh, how were you able to move a visioning program uh, uh, through so quickly and so effectively? Um, that's a great question. I believe that it was a function of a couple of things. One, we didn't focus on 5, 10, 15 years out. It was, what do we want to accomplish in the next two years? Or, and even our most current strategic plan that we did with the help of McKinsey, I, you know, I was very explicit. I was like, let's focus on three years. Because three years we can envision, and people can envision themselves doing something in three years, which I think is part of them then owning that vision and actually making it happen. Um, and then the other piece is that we had to really focus on culture and creating a culture I often joke with our staff that we are a startup cloaked inside a 25-year history. And we're all about risk-taking and prototyping and iterating. We embrace failure, and it's not seen as a negative. And, in fact, we spend a lot of time things that don't work out. We're like, hey, we own it, but this is what we've learned about it. And the third piece is I was very fortunate. Um, I alluded to this when I was at Goldman but I really believe that an institution, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, is only as good and only has the potential for success as the people who work there. And so we have really focused on hiring great people who, invi- who aspire and buy into the work that we are doing, and that creates its own momentum in and of itself. That's uh, that's fabulous um, and and very helpful to have sort of those uh, that list. I know on this program we have talked a lot about the theme of the need for risk taking and the relationship between giving permission for risk taking and uh, building a culture of creativity. I think really really do go hand in hand. But it is, in my experience, very rare uh, and perhaps unfortunately rare within the museum community for uh, someone uh, as a CEO to articulate it so clearly and also to clearly be living it. Uh, so I, I, uh, I appreciate that. I hope that you have an opportunity to mentor uh, other uh, up-and-coming CEOs uh, and leaders in the children's museum field because it certainly does seem as if that's, that is the area uh, where we where where museums uh, seem to be closest uh, to the community. I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about then uh, what came out of that first uh, strategic visioning uh, segment. You know, sort of what where did you want to go and where did you not want to go anymore? Yeah. So the first strategic a visioning exercise was really about building a stronger foundation for the core of the institution that would allow us to get to a point to really embrace a deeper 
interaction with the community out in the community. We had historically always been very focused on what happened on our site. And I think that over time, we had become very insular, actually. And so we... And this is also, you know, this is 2011, so roughly three and a half years after the economic downturn. And like many nonprofit institutions, we definitely felt the hit of that in terms of philanthropic giving, although we did probably weather it better than a lot. But as a result, we really needed to focus on our on-site visitor experience. And so we spent a lot of time on revitalizing that, everything from what your experience in terms of cleanliness and utility on the site was to what your interaction with our educators looked like, what sort of programming and the frequency of programming. We also spent a lot of time, as I alluded to, on the culture piece. It was really about breaking down silos that had started. When there were there really had not been a driving vision for the institution that brought all the different stakeholders together. And as a result, there had been really fractured to where we had silos, particularly around communication. There was a lot of uh, lack of clarity around roles and responsibilities. And so we spent a lot of time addressing those issues. And in fact, it's one of the things I now believe that you cannot communicate enough or be transparent enough with both your board and your staff and your donors. The more people understand the why, the more likely they are to do the what and figure out the how. And then the third was we recognized that internally we believe, and this is probably something that's, I think, slightly controversial in the children's museum world, is that play well, the way that children learn, and extremely important, is not in and of itself enough, that there is the ability to be more intentional and think about outcomes. And... So in, in part of doing that, that's when we launched our Center for Childhood Creativity, recognizing that we could go deeper in a particular topic and that that creativity, and not just in the arts, but really in holistic thinking and problem solving, was foundational for children and a key part of this, how they learn and what we need in the future from our citizens. And so I that think- became... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, well, finish up there, but I do want to unpack uh, that that uh, intentionality that you just uh, talked about after our break, but I interrupted you. No, that's okay. And so then we launched our Center for Childhood Creativity as the beginning of what might a our deeper engagement out in both the local community, but also on a national basis, what might that start to look like and what would be the vehicle for doing something that was unique, and that's also, I think, helping to uniquely position us as the intersection of research and practice. And so that was what the first two, two and a half years of my work at the museum was really focused on these three areas. And like all good plans, if they come to realization, what it really did is it not only, not to keep harping on this idea of alignment, but it really aligned everybody around making the right resource decisions and execution. So it was very powerful for us. That's 
That is fabulous. Uh, and I, there's so much more I, I want to ask and uh, uh, have you share with us. But, but we have to take a quick break. And when we come back, more with Karen Flynn, her vision for the Bay Area Discovery Museum, as well as for the place of uh, and the role of children's museums in our society. So please uh, stay tuned. There's more to come. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net or chat with me on Twitter uh, at MuseWrite. Uh, we will be back in a moment. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Uh, good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. Thank you for uh, continuing to listen. Today I have Karen Flynn, who is the CEO of the Bay Area Children's Museum with me. And before we uh, went to break, Karen was sharing with us uh, sort of the 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 thought process of their uh, first strategic planning uh uh, uh, exercise and Karen, you you talked about one of the things that that uh, that initial um, uh, self evaluation uh, brought to the fore. One of the results was the Center for uh, Children and Creativity. I hope I have that uh, that title right. And I was just hoping you might share a little bit more about what that is. Yes, so it's uh, it's called the Center for Childhood Creativity. 
And the center is the museum's research and advisory arm, founded on the belief that creativity development is not a nice-to-have, but rather a must-have and a foundational skill in children. And it's important for helping them learn math and literacy and all the other disciplines. And so the center works to um, produce high-quality research papers based on empirical evidence that look to different aspects of creativity development. So to date, we have published two white papers and are about to publish our third. The first is shared discoveries about the positive interactions between parents and children. And then the most recent was the seven, inspiring a generation to create the seven components of creativity creativity, arguing that creativity is something that can be taught and nurtured, and in fact is you have a greater genetic preponderance towards political disposition than to being creative, so it really is something that we can teach. And then the third forthcoming paper is looking at the cognitive, non-cognitive, and social-emotional skills of school readiness, and not just in terms of kindergarten, but through third grade to create a foundation for a lifelong love of learning and success in school. Wow. Uh, I th- it must be very rare for um, a museum, if one is in, in a natural history museum, to be uh, putting resources toward doing primary level research. Uh, are these when you talk about your research or you uh, and and your research initiatives now are are these uh, staff? Is this coming from your staff or is this coming from uh, external um, uh, evaluators and researchers coming in and using your facilities? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we have a head of research that is on staff, and to date. Our research reports have been a synthesis and literature review of existing research on the topics that we have delved into. Having said that, we also have an on-site creativity lab where we uh, partner with researchers from UC Berkeley, Mills College, um, University of Washington, and are therefore they not only come and do research on site, and we've had roughly 2,500 children uh, participate in research studies, but it gives us access to cutting-edge research that's just being done on topics like causal reasoning, <clears throat> how language ac- acquisition influences creativity and the role of social relationships in children's learning. And then we have recently also launched a distance research lab where we our first um, Partners have been Yale University and I believe it was University of Maryland where a researcher will tape their research study and how they would like it done. Our on-site staff then facilitate all the data collection and send it back to them. And what's been really fascinating is that's allowed people to finish research projects that might take them you know, nine months, 18 months to get it done in three or four at the, you know, at the most because we just have the quantity of people coming through the museum on a regular basis. So we're quite active, and we're also exploring right now through a partnership with Berkeley what would be our first um, proprietary research, which will be very exciting. 
that is fabulous to be able to leverage uh, that kind of uh, firepower, if you will, uh, from the research community and make those relationships. I think that that has been, uh, in my experience, one of the more challenging uh uh, situations to bring uh, researchers and museums sort of that, as you said, sort of the nexus of research and practice together so that you even know each other. Uh, and I would, I'm uh, hoping that this will become a model for uh, other institutions, both uh, uh, museums and research organizations to be able to uh, maximize their uh their impact by collaborating a little bit more. Have you been able to chat uh, or, or make presentations about this process? So that's interesting you ask. Helen <clears throat> Hadani, Dr. Helen Hadani, who is our head of research, has been involved in, she just finished co-authoring a book on uh, research in museums. She spoke at South by Southwest on uh, some of these very topics, and we're part of the National Living Lab Initiative, and we are also getting ready to jointly apply with another university for a grant to actually to train undergrads in speaking about research to the public, because this is one of the main reasons that we got into research and we're so committed to it, is that too often, research stays in academia. I mean, it might get into Psychology Today or American, Scientific American, but the breadth of it often doesn't make it down to the lay people, and we are deeply committed. Actually, this is the fundamental underlying principle. We're deeply committed to making sure that this powerful findings, research findings, get into the hands of educators and parents who are the people that are responsible for educating our children. And so we also have a, and then one of the ways that we do that on site is we have a research toys program every afternoon, which allows researchers to take a toy based on a famous research study and demonstrate it for parents and their children. And it engages them, you know, it then engages the public and the parents deep, more deeply to the research process and also helps them connect the dots between research and actually then what's happening on site in our programming and also how they might be able to use that at home with their own kids. <clears throat> that, uh, well, I'm just, I'm, this is the part that just got me so excited when I heard you speak um, several months ago. It, I just see it, uh, see it full of opportunities. Uh, I, also believe as you do that research uh, yields data uh, that allow us to to build our arguments of why say play is important or why museums are important to society and uh, you seem to be doing that uh, extraordinarily well and can be a resource for other museums I'd like to delve into something else that you said uh, in the last um uh, segment that I, I think bears a little bit more uh, discussion, and that is you said that uh, your research 
uh, is focusing on pl- on play, obviously, but looking at uh, the intentionality of how play fosters creativity. And I think that I've butchered exactly what you were trying to say. So if you could repeat that a little bit better, uh, it will be a, a, a benefit to our listeners. But I just found that that uh, essentially uh, not stopping with play is, I guess, would, would be your headline. Yeah, an interesting, I, I think that's right. It's, the, it's kind of go, putting our stake in the ground around a controversial topic that play in and of itself is not enough, but that play is an opportunity to be more intentional about learning outcomes. And one of the places right now where we're focused on that is we are prototyping the world's first early childhood fab lab. And a fab lab is essentially a digital maker space with tools such as 3D printers, laser cutters, vinyl cutters, CNC machines, digital sewing machines. And while these exist for middle school, high school, college, and in fact they were founded out of MIT, no one has really explored what this would look like for 3 to 10-year-olds, particularly on the lower end of the age range. And one of the things that differentiates it from a more traditional makerspace is that it's not just the process of making, but it's actually trying to, we're part of a partnership with Ties and the Fab Foundation to define what are those learning outcomes? Like, why are we asking children to engage in this process? And, you know, we'll do it in a very open-ended, child-directed way, but we really are trying to figure out what is, what is the, what are the outcomes that we want? Why are we doing this? And I think sometimes the children's early childhood education gets stopped at the open-ended, child-directed piece. And I think that, that while that is always a fundamental and a core, I do think that the intentionality of outcomes is a piece that is often missing. Can you give an example? Oh, it's very early. On the Fab Lab side, no, we're still very early. I mean, and we are trying to teach, to the extent that we are trying to teach early engineering and early design thinking skills, for example, I mean, that would be an example. Like, we are doing this because we want children to have the sense that they can think of something in their mind, put it into a 2D format on paper or a tablet, turn it into a 3D model that is then made on the laser cutter or the 3D printer or, you know, in the um, silhouette printer, and that when it comes out, they can see that they've built that, and then they can iterate. They can say, well, you know, this doesn't really work, or this wasn't what I had in mind, so let me go back and change that and redo it. So it's that part of that process piece as well that, you know, make, iterate, refine. That, I, that is a, a good example. And I appreciate that the, you know, the lab is new. Um, but I, you know, as you were talking, it just uh, brought me back that uh, in, you know, in the great olden days, um, <laughs> when I was a young lass, uh, the whole reason primarily that uh, we went to graduate school was to learn just that. As my graduate advisor um, in biology said, uh, the reason that you are here is to learn how to think, uh, not yeah. necessarily. Uh, and and it uh, seems a shame that it took me until I was 24 years old to learn how to think. But I, um, I, 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 th- 
I believe that where we are now in our society, it's not just learning how to think, but it's it's learning how to apply new tools and, of course, being open to even accepting newer tools because, of course, the 3D printer of today is not going to be uh, the technology that a five-year-old is going to encounter when, when she's 20. Uh, but, it, but it is taking that full loop. Uh, and I guess the assessment would be, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if, that, uh, if that child was even interested in doing further iterations. I mean, did, did the spark catch, I guess would be another right. way of saying that. And that's a piece that for us is very exciting. I mean, the whole thing is very exciting while, while at the same time being somewhat daunting because there's, candidly, there's a lot of skeptics. When we say what we're doing, they're like, hmm, I don't know that you can do that with young kids. And we continue to believe that it's possible. We have just started prototyping program programming in the Fab Lab. One of the challenges has been that there's no software that exists for the earliest learners. And so we're partnering with Fable Vision to develop some software that will do that. We're also um, using Adobe Illustrator and have found that the tablet version actually allows younger kids to start to do the actual design in terms of applying it to the technology. <coughs> but it's going to be the evaluation piece, and we're getting ready to kick off this summer an evaluation project to really answer these questions. And, I mean, we believe that the, question, the answers will be very positive, but we're also prepared to say, like, wow, we thought, you know, X might happen, but really it turned out that it was Y. The two things that I do know is that children are spending much longer dwell time with these types of projects and that it's really been a way for in total family engagement. And that's something that we're always looking for. And while the museum offers the opportunity for parents sometimes to come and their kids are playing and they get to check out, and that's very valuable, I think the real challenge that we all aspire to is how can you create significant parent-child interaction and the Fab Lab and this type of process that we are asking people to engage in, we're seeing it happen, particularly with dads as well, which is always interesting. That's fabulous. And and. I am so glad that you are also engaging in documenting that research because I think so many of us say that one of the values of any kind of museum experience is to engage the generations or engage the entire group. But having said that, uh, I think it, it, it still seems to be a little bit of a magic soup uh, yes. that, uh, that, that we all uh, engage in and saying, well, if it works here in this, this situation, we can apply it to something else. And of course, that, that is not always the case. So I'm, I just, I can't wait uh, for you to be doing uh, uh, more research and, and publishing it. It also occurs to me that one of the areas where this could be extremely valuable is in testing uh, some of the recent research that is coming out um, uh, in terms of cognitive uh, retention uh, between reading on a page and reading on a tablet. I find yeah. that absolutely fascinating. As do I. I can't wait to see where that goes. <laughs> 
Well, I tell you what, we're going to take our second break. It's a logical break. And when we come back, uh, Karen and I are just going to continue on with all of the wonderful projects that she's doing and all of the wonderful questions that are out there for us all to be answering. Uh, So please stay tuned. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I've been having a fabulous conversation today with Karen Flynn, the CEO of the uh, Bay Area Children's Museums, and what Karen has been doing in moving the museum beyond the obvious, uh, questioning our assumptions, and in doing that, providing uh, data and uh, research opportunities for, uh, for others to help us really understand uh, what, uh, what's real and, and what's not in terms of, uh, of, of, of learning uh, and I think that it would the this issue of being able to teach creativity. I think many of us don't even think about it. We just assume that particularly young children are born creative, and that it is society that maybe breaks you know breaks that down. So I guess uh, my question to you, Karen, and I know again this is very early research, but in talking with some of your uh, colleagues. Is it that, you know, as human 
as a human species, we're creative, uh, and then it just goes downhill hill from there? Or is it that creativity is something that the environment has to nurture from the beginning, or it just doesn't grow just like, uh, you know, everything else in our bodies? It's a great question. It is definitely something that is determined by our environment and experience, but those are two things that we have a lot of control over and that we can make a difference in. Our work has identified seven critical components to building creativity skills. They are imagination, flexibility, decision-making, communication and self-explanation, motivation, collaboration, action, and movement. And those are all things that we can we can do, whether it's in school, in a formal education environment, or in museums, or out-of-school time, or other informal edu- uh, education environments. And I think that's what makes it so exciting, is that this really key fundamental skill, particularly if you believe, as the research is showing, that 65% of jobs for today's kindergartners do not yet exist. This is not about opening a child's head up and pouring in some facts and expecting them to memorize it. It's really about giving them the skills to think creatively, to problem solve, to collaborate, so that they will be ready to figure out the answers to those 65% or to develop the skills that are going to be needed. So I think when you think about it in a long-term need, it becomes... I find it incredibly powerful and very compelling. Yes. Uh, I, I, you know, what was occurring to me when you were um, repeating that statistic is it's not only have the jobs not been created yet, but the environment has not been created, where we're going to live, how we live. Uh, we had talked uh, earlier on the show about the importance of having natural spaces that are safe, uh, both both physically, you know, children can't be playing in a busy street, uh, right. and making sure that there are, are environments that are fun to explore, but not, uh, not dangerous in some way, and also helping parents to understand uh, you know, give up a little control, maybe, you know, just a little tiny bit maybe. And I think that's becoming more and more difficult and in our society. So we're, it sounds as if what, what you're saying is we're, we're taking these opportunities to create children who can become adults who are flexible in a future that we can't really even imagine. Yeah. I think that was very, that was very well said. That's exactly right. So, Karen, in this last uh, segment, I'd like to you know go back more to a, a little bit about the mu- museum. I, I want to give you an opportunity if you want to share you know uh, one or two other uh, exciting opportunities that are going on with the museum. Uh, and also, I, I'd like you to reflect a little bit. You know, you said you've been there uh, a little over five years. Um, how do you maintain uh, a staff uh, that continues to want to uh, expose themselves to new challenges and uh, possible failure? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, or multiple questions. Uh, I'll start. I'll start the, the, uh, I'll start with the new initiatives. I think one thing that I'm very excited about is 
The museum is a partner in 100KN10, the national organization that is committed to providing 100,000 high-quality STEM teachers in over the next 10 years. And through our partnership, we were invited, through the partnership, we were invited to participate in an engineering fellowship as early engineering skills were identified as something that with the rollout of next generation science standards are somewhat lacking in the ability for teachers to implement in their classroom. It's just not an area that's received a tremendous amount of focus. And our idea that we propose based on research with the end user, i.e. teachers and schools, was a mobile engineering lab. And we recently received a significant grant to build out a mobile engineering lab that will spend its time in the community visiting schools, libraries, imagine boys and girls clubs, other out-of-school time providers that will provide developmentally appropriate and engaging early engineering activities to teach design thinking and math skills, as well as supporting teachers' professional development in embracing engineering uh, within their practices within the classroom. So we're very excited about that, and the lab will hopefully, the wheels will hit the ground, so to speak, uh, in the next year, about 12 months from now. Wow, how fun. Yes, that's going to be very fun. We're very excited. And then your question about uh, inspiring a staff to stay creative, um, it, it's honestly always a little bit of a challenge because I think different people embrace risk-taking and thereby creativity in different ways um, and at different speeds. And so we actually are going through a process right now at the museum of articulating our values, but not in a way that a lot of, I hate to say this, but a lot of consultants or organizations approach it, which seems very externally driven. And we're actually starting with a premise of what is the promise that we make to people when we hire them? And And that promise is based in what are our expectations? And so it's things like, um, the ability to be really collaborative. Like, that is something that we expect. Like, you have to have that to come and work at the museum. You must have a relative high degree of self-direction. And you have to really embrace the status quo is not an option. And And the reason we're doing this is that we're recognizing that sometimes people will come and it's not that they're not talented or they don't have the skill set, but it's really this fit piece that, is not clicking, and it's often because they, um, it's hard for them, the fast pace that we move at, the fact that we're not afraid to fail or that we have this expectation that people are going to be really collaborative, and but, but something has to come out of that and that there's a high degree of accountability. And so this is one of our ways of addressing this, is saying that while we've made a lot of strides in our culture and a culture that supports risk-taking, we still actually have some work to do so that we can be so specific and own the culture that we have that we can then communicate it very clearly as part of our hiring process. Because I think if you hire the right people, this goes back to hiring the right people, but if you can hire the right people, the culture then becomes self reinforcing entity, which helps then keep the creativity high. And I also think that because people are seeing the fruits of our labor, you know, part of our growth has really been driven by 
that we're doing really exciting work and the community, both the end user and the donor community, are responding really well. It provides a great feedback loop that makes people want to continue to try these different things and build on what's working. That, uh, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think that this theme of hiring intentionality and being clear about the culture of the organization in a way that, that can be articulated, uh, I think uh, too often uh, that when we when I've heard programs about the culture of the organization, it, it pretty much sounds as if, uh, uh, you know, godmotherhood in apple pie or, uh, you know, everything is wonderful and, and we all have a, you know, we all get along. Uh, but um, to say that it's a creative environment may also mean that you don't always get along. Uh, and that there have to be creative conflicts and creative conflict resolution to move forward. Yes, and I think it also recognition, you know, I, I think anytime you're building something worthwhile, it doesn't mean that it's always easy. And I think there is a tendency to want everything to be nice, warm, and fuzzy, and it's not always going to be that way. And so if you accept that and you work to embrace the, like the necessary hardness, you're going to have to make some hard decisions to do this but you recognize that you're feeding and nurturing something that is incredibly, critically important to your future success. And that then it also then, if you have a really high performer on your left, that they want to be supported by someone who's equally high performing on the right. Like if it's development or marketing or education, you need everyone feeling like they're being supported at the same level and are surrounded by creative, thoughtful, passionate, risk-taking colleagues. Yes, well, well said. So, I, I guess my last question uh, for you then is: What challenges you the most in terms of leading this organization? I think probably like a lot of nonprofits, it's the access to capital. You know, in the for-profit world, it's very easy to have an idea and go raise money against an idea. And one of the things that's extremely frustrating and an unproven idea. And one of the things that's extremely frustrating in our work is we will have a great, something that we think is a great idea that we'd love to try out. And too often donors are like, well, come back to me when you've proven the impact. And you're like, well, that's the whole point. We need someone to be supportive of actually trying this new idea or a new way of doing something and being our partner in the prototyping stage. And I think to this extent that really my call to action for both the donor community at the individual level and foundation level is to support nonprofits as they are trying to do new and innovative work where the, the outcomes are unknown. But I think we have to continue to evolve. And just by always supporting the status quo, we're not going to get there. You know, that's very interesting. I've never heard it articulated so well that there does seem to be a an assumption uh, within the donor community and, and from individuals and, and uh, foundations, as you said, that the um, the the organization, whether it be a museum or a soup kitchen, its goal is to deliver product. 
as opposed yeah. to developing and piloting and being that research entity. And uh, that assumption uh, is something that we're laboring with within the entire museum uh, community, including figuring out how we come up with a better term for the kinds of organizations that we are that isn't so so freighted by some of the older uh, assumptions about what museums are. I couldn't agree more. I, I sometimes... <laughs> If I had it in me, and I don't right now, to take on a name change, I sometimes feel that having museum in our title has nothing to do with the value, but that it gives people a preconceived notion of something that doesn't capture the forward-thinking nature of the work that we are trying to do. And it's too bad. Um, but I think there is something in that that the community, the museum community is going to have to explore so that we are seen as places of real innovation and social change and answers to some of society's most complex problems. Yes. So all the listening uh, listeners out there, if you have a better, uh, a, a good suggestion, uh, send it to me on Twitter at, at NewsWrite. And with that, Karen, I want to thank you and uh, for being on the show today. Uh, this has been uh, just a perfect way to... And what uh, uh, has been a fabulous ride in doing museum life, as many of you know, I'm going to be taking a short sabbatical uh, to focus on some of my other projects, uh, continuing my consulting practice and working uh, with, with colleagues throughout the world on some important uh, uh, museum issue projects. Uh, opportunities. So the show, uh, the podcasts are going to continue to be available uh, on my website and at uh, Museum Life's uh, portal. So can uh, use this opportunity to binge on those shows that you haven't watched. I want to thank um, uh, Voice America, my fabulous producer Winston Price, and my wonderful, wonderful assistant producer Rojane Patterson for uh, continuing to help me on this wonderful journey. And to all of you, who have listened and supported me. I truly appreciate it. I'll be back in July. Uh, please don't be a stranger. Let me know what you're thinking about and what shows and topics we need to be addressing uh, in the fall. So thank you very much for a while. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>